Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. With Eurovision fast approaching, we take a look at Ukraine's contribution to the contest over the years and its importance in European relations. This and more on Sakrodonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. If, uh, if you consider yourself ethnic, then uh, May is a very exciting time of the year because it's Eurovision. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> it's good times. Good. We decided that in this week's episode, we would spotlight uh, Ukraine's journey throughout Eurovision's history, namely, you know, the 15 years that it's been participating. So 2003 was the first time that Ukraine performed in Eurovision. Uh, if you don't know what Eurovision is. Uh, so Eurovision is a continental song contest that takes place in europe and the joke is that it's replaced a lot of the wars in europe because now countries can battle it out with song and dance on the stage oh yeah i would argue continental is like a loose term now anyway well considering australia is also part of eurovision excuse me australia likes to pretend it's off the south coast of england (laughs) so yeah that's the gist of eurovision yes they sing other countries vote for you and if you get enough votes, then you become that year's winner and then you get to host the year after. And it's important to note that usually the voting is very political. It's uh, symbolic voting where countries that have had long-term rivalries <laughs> tend to vote for each other to try and show solidarity rather than sometimes uh, a meritocracy where the best act actually wins. But increasingly, it seems like the quality of the acts is kind of changing um, now that obviously Europe is more unified than the European Union, some of that stuff's fallen away. Yeah, I always like when watching the voting, I used to try and like guess which... Hello from Sweden! <laughs> That's the one. That's exactly how they'd say it. Um, but I'd always try and guess like, okay, you know, like Norway's up. Who's Norway going to vote for? Oh, they're going to give points to Denmark and they're going to give points just to like this one. You kind of like try and pick based on like their region of Europe and like their politics, who they're going to like favor. Or Greece versus Cyprus, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've tried to dampen it with... Because they, they keep changing the voting system every couple of years, trying to suppress, not uh, like suppress or dampen like the national vote with the expert vote. Oh, okay. Ooh. So I think the last couple of years, it's been a 50-50 split of the, the popular vote and the, you know, the professional opinion of the song. And you can see quite, some of the results are quite varied on what the professionals think is a good entry and what the public think. Hmm. And I think what's interesting is Australia was a... Uh, guest entry in 2015 but sufficiently impressed so much that they became a permanent fixture in a european song contest and i did say it before but i still think that makes it quite interesting in itself <laughs> yeah and yeah, now they have to add like the, the cut out of australia and europe now <laughs> but considering like all the political ties that other countries have with each other you know i'll vote for you you vote for me oh my gosh how dare you you didn't vote for me like the fact that you know ukraine's appeared in Eurovision 15 times and in every single time that it's appeared it's made it to the grand final is just amazing like it's so cool for Ukraina um like nine of those times they finished in the top 10 five of them they finished in the top three and they won twice uh so Ruslana became Ukraine's first winner in 2004 which was only the second time ever that Ukraine performed in Eurovision 
and the second time was in 2016 by an artist called Jamala. And we should note that um, Ukraine is the first Eastern European country to win the contest more than once, which I think is quite a good achievement considering... Yeah, they definitely live, uh, they would punch above their weight for sure. Yeah, and I think out of all the performance, I think Ukraine has had some quite memorable songs that are very like t- like typical Eurovision. Um, Especially like in the start, like it's very typical like Eurovision, like crazy sort of like themed uh, songs and stuff. So like Ruslana with her wild dances where they had like the trembetes and like the flamethrowers and fire everywhere. And you had Verkar Serduchka with her uh, dancing Lasha Tumbai and just some man dressed in no, a that, dress. That, that in itself is very Eurovision, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But that's iconic. Yeah, he's got like the star on top and he's got the shining um, dress like and a tie. Like a human, <laughs> yeah. human disco ball. Yeah, pretty much. My mate always like played it around me. He's like, Lasha Tumbai. <laughs> and I think it's important to note that um, any songs that have political connotations are not allowed to have their lyrics in the contest. And I think when we think about Vodka Saduchka, the, the Lasha Tumbai kind of does say, like, Russia goodbye. So but we'll come back to that later. Stuff, so. <laughs> yeah, and then um, we had Jamala with her 1944 about the deportation of Crimean Tatars, which was uh, pretty emotional. And it, it was uh, deviated f- quite a lot from the typical, like, hip-hop um, sounding music to something more calm and sadder yeah and as you said justin lasha tumbai is ukraine's first controversial entry into eurovision so when the song was first played out um members of the russian duma or parliament complained that the song was a coded message of saying russia goodbye because ukraine performed the song in 2007 in the aftermath of ukraine's first major revolution the orange revolution and Russia saw it as Ukraine, you know, more openly breaking with Russia. However, Verka Serduchka said that the words come from the Mongolian language. And then these, you know, Russian politicians went out and found Mongolian linguists and were like, this word doesn't exist. And it's kind of like, come on, guys, it's a song. Like, give it a break. Yeah, I remember hearing about that and I was like, Man, they get taking this really seriously. <laughs> like, you're getting like Mongolian linguists and stuff. Like, chill. All right. I think Eurovision the f- is serious business, Nathan. I think the sorry, further yes. east How you go I? in Europe, the more serious Eurovision becomes. Yeah, true. Um, Ukraine's next major controversy was with Jamala. And that was because her song sung about her grandmother's experience of the Crimean Tatar deportation that occurred in the aftermath of World War II by Stalin. And again, Russian politicians complained that Ukraine was dragging geopolitics into the contest. However, um, Ukraine's uh, public broadcaster came out and said that the song itself is not political. It's singing about a personal experience. And, you know, uh, it doesn't actually mention the deportation in name. It just references it, which I think... Uh, and which the European Broadcasting Union agreed with and allowed the song to be performed and, you know, it went on to win the contest. So obviously it resonated with a lot of people. I guess you could say like any song kind of has... Well, I mean, they're all based on something and if someone's writing a song about like their family experience or their own life experience, you could tie that to any political thing. You know, I mean, Conchita Wurst, for example, from Austria, she did a big thing like Rise Like a Phoenix. You could 
construe that as oh she's promoting you know transgenderism of turning it into politics you could make that any point like basically so i think that when like and especially considering it was the russian government that was the one that was actually like talking about was it vodka sedruchka well yeah for vodka and jamala yeah so it, you can you can see that it's as opposed to the people saying, oh, I don't like this song because it has political connotations. It's the Russian government saying, oh, I don't agree with this song because it has political connotations. And I thought that's interesting that it's actually the government, not so much the Russian people. And I know we sort of thought, oh, wow, that's a lot of attention for the Russian Duma to focus on, you know, Eurovision politics as opposed to geopolitics. But I think it's probably worth saying that looking at Ukraine's history in the competition, it probably is one of the areas that this and the Olympics where Ukraine has actually profiled itself quite well and, and quite given positive. it and given itself a unique identity that's separate and, and a profile that's higher in non-europe not in european countries as well so i think they take it seriously because obviously it's part of nation building in the 21st century for ukraine and ukraine's final controversy of eurovision doesn't oh it's related to russia but it's more to do with the performer that won ukraine's um selection criteria so in 2019 the artist maruv won ukraine's um selection process to represent the country at that year's eurovision song contest however when it came time to sign the contract um about you know detailing how the whole six-month process would take um ukraine's government stipulated that she couldn't perform in russia at least during that time period and she said that she didn't agree with that because a lot of her fans were based in Russia and she said she didn't want to be political and so she refused to sign the contract with Ukraine's public broadcaster to perform and you know because Ukraine wanted to participate they tried to offer the opportunity to perform to the two runner-ups in the selection process however they both refused and so Ukraine had to withdraw that year because they didn't have an entrant and it was too late to hold another selection process so I kind of feel it was bad that she rejected on principle, saying that mm. she didn't like she shouldn't be banned from performing in Russia. But it's sort of like you're at war with them, and then she refused to kind of talk about the war. Yeah, and look, I think that brings us to where this the origins again of Eurovision. I mean, it really was a divided Europe that was trying to be united by the Eurosong contest that became Eurovision, and ultimately, I mean, there was the deep divide between the East and West um, at that time. There was the Iron Curtain. There was East and West Germany in those early years. Um, there was obviously deep divisions in Britain between Britain and Ireland um, that were all kind of played on this stage. And as we look at, a, I guess, a, a European Union now that you know carries most of the European countries, not all, but a lot of the Western countries that were unified, is Eurovision still relevant? So I think Eurovision still holds an important aspect because it allows a lot of the diaspora communities of Europe to stay connected with their homeland because it's quite easy... Like if you're on the fringe of your community to get involved with Eurovision because it's a light, easy event and, you know, everyone likes music. So it's an easy way to like break people in or like come off the fringes and also promote their community to their wider like home country. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think as well, to some degree, I mean, it's a little bit of a different topic You know, is bring more countries into Eurovision than just European countries, making it more relevant too. I mean, you mentioned that idea of the diaspora experience or the, the people that are away from their own country. Um, like, obviously, that's why I think Eurovision works for Australia is because so many of those European countries have mig- deep communities here with a lot of migrants historically for 70 years or more. And so there's support for that 
in that way, even though there's an Australian contestant who might not be from one of those European <laughs> countries, it still seems to work in a way where there's a link back to that kind of shared heritage or that 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 idea. And I mean, I don't know if it becomes World Vision, but that's already a charity. <laughs> but you know, there's there's obviously a um, there is something that yeah you know, makes sense about perhaps including a few more countries that have those migrant that the interested migrants maybe and making it more a wider experience that way in some aspects it's still relevant though not for me really i have I've st- kind of stopped watching it only seeing like the highlights or like seeing like what ukraine's performing but um yeah i kind of agree with alexa in that it it gives like the diaspora to cling on to something and to perform and watch it all together really so yeah. yeah. Do you think, Andre, though, that that's is that because Eurovision stopped becoming relevant, or do you think that's because our viewing habits have changed? I mean, when you talk about live to air TV and they're not being kind of as much on demand content, and that like thinking back to when we would watch it even ourselves a lot more. Obviously, when Ukraine was up and coming into the contest, it was very exciting. You know, Ruslana and, and everything else was just amazing that we had these experiences at that time. But part of it, I wonder, is it because it was live TV and on demand was not mature? You still went to the video store for a you know DVD, like and is is the is it relevant? I guess in this internet age is another question. I'd say it's like it's like a mix of both in terms of like overall, uh, like what you're saying is correct, but then like it's also like the person's like taste changing because I prefer like the older, uh, Europe, uh, Eurovision style of like some funny song. Um, like Poland churning butter on stage. Yeah, yeah, like oh. that one especially. <laughs> That's like one of my top ten songs. That one. Oh man. Yeah, I, I just, like. Oh, do you remember like the gnomes running around as well? Oh. Yeah. So those are like my favorite ones. I've kind of like. So you're saying it's too slick now? Oh, I'm saying it's, like it's, it's not funny stri- enough. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's interesting. Because I mean, there's that film recently. Um, what's it called? Wings of Fire or. There's like a Eurovision film that came out very recently. Oh, yes. Um, and it was hilarious. I very highly recommend <laughs> it to anyone who wants to watch it. But that really captures that idea of the ostentatiousness of the performances and the ridiculousness of the staging or the choreography or the obscenity of their clothes, their costumes or whatever else. And yeah, in some ways it's kind of whether whether Europe's become less weird or the rest of the world <laughs> has come closer to Europe, but it doesn't. I think it's probably slicker, and maybe Australia is partly responsible for this because, like, if you look at Guy Sebastian or um, yeah, Australia or, would never you know, put on Dami some of those Im, performances. A lot of those performances are main, more mainstream Western music style, you know, performances rather than kind of that unique Eurovision style European. Style. I would argue it's more that they're trying to like legitimize it as more of an international um, uh, program, performance. yeah, performance or show as opposed to just a. Um, a European one and that's kind of where I feel a little like not upset but I would have preferred it stay European mainly because like if Australia gets in what's the possibility that one day the US might get in and if the US gets into yet another music industry well then that's just going to dominate it given how large their music industry is and I think that's why Eurovision had its own thing and it gave especially considering that there are lots of artists in Europe it gave them their own unique shot at building up to something as opposed to having to compete with massive industries like that in America. Yeah, you raise a really good point, Nathan. I mean, look, I think any of us, when we travel, you realise in most Western countries, the top 50, aside from a few local acts, tends to be pretty similar. Whereas, yeah, I think it's I think Eurovision is probably one of the few places that in the West, I guess, you get mainstream 
exposure to other languages in music as well. Yep. You know, you don't get like just hits in English. Um, and, you know, certainly maybe that's a way to continue keeping it more relevant is really bringing in more of that, um, you know, that kind of multilingual aspect of it. Yeah. And well, I, I agree with you there, Easton, because I feel like Eurovision is slowly trending back to doing national language music because there was that trend in the 2000s where every country sang in English. But like, what is it? In 2020, Ukraine was meant to perform a song for the first time entirely in Ukrainian. Up until that point, they'd be mainly English with some sprinkling of Crimean Tatar in Jamala's song and then German and Russian in Lasha Tumbai, in addition to English and Ukrainian. Those songs were English? Like sometimes maybe the accent. <laughs> <laughs> but see, also, I find that when someone, like when a country wins, the next year, everyone tries to analyze what made them win and kind of base it off that. So, like, if a slow song wins, I'm always like, oh, next year's going to have so many ballads because they're all going to try and, like, recreate that. Um and if the song sings in English, I've always noticed that then following that, you have a lot more songs that sing in English. And yeah, you can kind of tell you're gonna, they're going to try and follow what happened previously. Well, uh, do you remember the when I think it was Sweden won Eurovision a couple of years Is ago? Is when he randomly won because he, so, he got so many it, third place ones? I can't remember. The one like, with the TV it's, screen. It's and like the TV up. screen. He's like climbing along the wall at one point, right? <laughs> the year after Russia did the exact same thing they had like their own TV panel and a guy like walked along it as well <laughs> so it was like pretty much like a copy and paste of it really like you were saying before yeah still haven't seen more men with beards and ball gowns on, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. obviously Conchella's got a unique brand that no one wants to try and imitate that's true and I haven't heard any um, like hard rock metal since um, Lordy oh uh, Finland oh. yeah gotta get that back in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah Cool. Um, but I was listening to Ukraine's song for this year, and that's interesting, <laughs> um, especially if you watch the YouTube video, because um, they're all in like their COVID safe things. Oh, yeah, all the PPE in the music yeah, video. and they're like <laughs> dancing as if they're, they look like, they legit look like those people that like collect the bodies and stuff with like their <laughs> white gowns and stuff. And I was like, this is interesting. But I uh, know it's quite popular in... Um, like clubs and stuff around Europe and everyone's like raging over it. But I don't know. Um, I don't know how, how successful it's going to be. I feel like maybe, I guess it all depends on what the rest of the com competition is like. I haven't heard most of the other songs, but if it kind of just blends into what everyone else is doing, then, you know, my, maybe it doesn't stand a chance. But um, I don't know. That's, this it is a reminds tough one. me, you know, of those old school, like, like how all the old people in like a village would sing. It's like that's the style of music, like the singing it reminds me of. But yeah. then you've got techno and the like traditional flute music mixed into the background. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's got that higher pitch, does it? Yeah. I'm only better with predictions. Like I always used to try and like see who's going to win the Grammys and stuff and like make little lists and see how accurate my thing was. But with uh, this Eurovision one, I'm like, I have no idea. Like it could go either way. <laughs> well, everyone that's reacted to it, seems to think that it's going to do really well so hopefully it does because you know the more profile for ukraine the better and also once that like once that favorite kind of gets picked everyone kind of just goes with that on the night so yeah maybe does anyone know uh, speaking of covid does anyone know what the arrangements are this year is it kind of i think the plan to is to go ahead with a full concert but it might just not be as mosh pity as the traditional Eurovision concert has become. 
considering how closely they dance on stage, it's also social distancing on stage. <laughs> it might change the choreography a bit. I'm actually really interested in like the tech side and seeing what they come up with. I remember I saw one guy from the Netherlands. He, his piano started like it's set on fire from the middle and was like flaming as he was playing. Yeah, the tech stuff's amazing because obviously Eurovision's probably one of the, the better test beds for LED stages and LED floors and um, all these kind of things that kind of now are taken for granted, all kind of, I think, pioneered. And it's actually been really interesting if you're from a Ukrainian perspective, just if you check out the um, the Eurovision's hosted by Ukraine in both 2005 and in 2017, um, they're actually a really good way to see modern interpretation of Ukrainian uh, cinematography and staging and lighting. It's just some really cool things that get done in terms of, because obviously every every host does their own cultural performances in between. So if you haven't seen that sort of stuff, if you haven't been exposed to Eurovision, I think it's a really cool place to see modern Ukrainian production design, staging um, and, and video. So it's a good point, Nathan. In answer to your previous question about uh, how Eurovision will run regarding COVID. So on the 2nd of March, uh, they just announced that... Um, that Eurovision 2021 will be held under Scenario B basis. So I read you Scenario B. Uh, Everyone attending the Eurovision Song Contest at Rotterdam's arena would need to practice social distancing. Um, So they're going to have like strict health and safety measures um, in place, uh, a protocol to protect artists, delegations and crew on and off site. Um, If there are any delegations who can't travel to Rotterdam, their artists will perform live on tape with a recorded performance being used. Uh, those who can travel to Rotterdam will perform their songs live on stage. Maybe they should all take a page out of Ukraine's entry and everyone should come in full PPE <laughs> for the two, for the three nights. <laughs> and they plan to have regular testing. So mid-concert go for I a COVID say, swab. Yeah, like on the mosh pit, they're just like jabbing people in the nose. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the idea of like, I guess it makes complete sense. If, you, if you're quarantined out, you can't participate in... Um, in obviously you can just have a video performance of your performance or even a simulcast from another location in your own country actually makes me think i mean we're going to probably have the topic of ukraine and the olympics coming up um, with tokyo not far away but obviously what they're banking on with tokyo is this idea that obviously that every athlete will be quarantined or like the australian open will arrive and participate but you know going forward maybe that's something to think about i mean there's no reason you couldn't virtually run everyone on, around the track somewhere and get their times and then work out which one's yeah. the best. I know it's a bit, a bit of a sad reality, but, <laughs> I mean, considering how expensive the Olympics are and that nobody seems to want to have them except for Australia and yeah, US we've got, and what, France. So, I mean, yeah. maybe that's a way to actually get Cause I think a more affordable Olympics. 2032, I think Australia's meant to have it. Yeah, and I should say I don't, I don't condone such a horrible <laughs> event. <but laughs> brave new world. Uh, what are your guys' favorite Eurovision songs of all time? Mine would probably be Vertica. Vertica? <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's so iconic. And whenever you ask an Aussie about Eurovision, Vertica is one of the f- like consistent songs that they reference. Okay, I'd go for them uh, for Vertica as well because it's always a funny thing to bring up, and everyone just loves how funny it looked in the video and like the song as well. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Um, I'd have to say Ruslana because I think although she had the Xena Warrior Princess look that was probably hip and cool in the time, it wasn't quite as weird as some of the other of Ukraine's entries. But to be perfectly honest, uh, for those Australians are listening as well, some of the Australian performances have probably been some of the better performances in recent too. So either yeah. Dummy Im or Guy Sebastian. I'm going to have my blasphemy here. 
my one isn't Ukrainian. <gasps> oh. <laughs> yeah, my one's uh, it's Iceland from 2013. This guy it's, had like a sick song. Isn't that the, like the death metal one or whatever? No, no, this guy was like, it was a ballad. And it was oh, like, is this the guy you're friends with from Facebook? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Before he became famous. Yeah. Um, here's some cool stuff you post, except it's Icelandic and I can't be bothered. <laughs> you're, you're just being biased because you know him. <laughs> no, it was after I um, heard his song. But yeah, no, nah, that's my favorite song. Every time I watch it after that, I'm like, is this one going to beat that song? Nah. Anyway, Brianna. I would have said Verka as well, but when I was doing research for this story, I came across another Iceland song from um, last year, actually. And it's called Think About Things. I don't know. It's just, it's my vibe. It's so cool. It's like the really crazy like baseline and oh, I love it. Sorry. Did it. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, because we're going away from the Ukraine, we're trying to help you guys out here for not picking Ukrainian one. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think there's also some interesting, because there's obviously a lot of similarities through Slavic languages. There's been some really good songs out of Poland and things like that as well. I remember there was one Molotva, which is obviously Molotva or Prayer which was a crazy ballad a few years back, which is quite nice too. And Belarus usually comes with good entries every now and then. Yeah. I think it was Romania or Moldova. Moldova had Epic Sax guy. Yeah, Epic Sax guy. He, he's one of the other good ones as well. I reckon he's one of my favourites as well. Uh, so for all those uh, hardcore Eurovision fans, I'm sure you know that it's coming up again this May. But for those who are curious based on our conversation, keep an eye out um, on the Tuesday, the 18th of May for the semifinals and the grand final will be on the 22nd, Saturday, 22nd of May. So that's the Eurovision week. Uh, feel free to look at YouTube, check it up on your local stations around the world. You'll definitely find some way to view it. And at least have a look at Ukraine's entry. In the news this week, CNN has listed Ukraine's Bosch in its top 20 soups from around the world. The listing also mentions Russia's claim to the dish and Ukraine's campaign to have Borscht listed on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Historians from various sources have been able to show that the first mentions of the soup come from the territory of modern-day Ukraine, a fact which is also corroborated in Soviet-era books. Pro-Russian MP Vadim Rabinovich has posted a map of Ukraine without the Crimean Peninsula on his Facebook page. The map depicts how and where the Ukrainian language is used based upon Russian propaganda, which claims that Ukrainian is only spoken in the western part of the country. Many Ukrainian netizens commented that since Ukraine has started sanctioning Putin's cronies, they have now come out publicly with all their views. The map also labels the occupied territories in Donbass as the DPR and LPR, which are recognized as terrorist organizations in the country. President Zelensky has received his first dose of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine whilst visiting the front line in the Luhansk Oblast. Zelensky received his vaccination at a military hospital along with other soldiers. To date, Ukraine has vaccinated almost 5,000 people since its vaccine rollout began last week. Ukraine's Ministry of Health expects to receive another 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine by the end of March. Additionally, the country expects to receive more than 117,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine in early March. This week, Ukraine's Vahovna Rada launched a new voting system that should put an end to the widespread practice of Ukrainian MPs voting on behalf of their absent colleagues. Known as Knopodostvo, or piano voting, the practice has been used by all parties in Ukraine to boost their numbers during voting. Under the new system, in order to cast their vote, MPs must activate a sensor with one hand while voting with the other. Crucially, they must keep the sensor activated throughout the entire duration of the voting period. 
thus preventing them from voting on behalf of their neighbours. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UKLife Broad content.